This is what people are saying about the Osso Bootcamp. It's a commodity that you cannot afford to start a business without. You feel safe. You feel safe to ask the questions that are really, really important to you. Even though you think, oh, maybe that's kind of a dumb question. No, just ask the question. Someone will answer to you. Someone will help you address the issue that is really important to you. But I thought I had to come into the market with a perfect product. But now I understand that, you know, I should have my MVP and just pivot along the way. And that's, that's actually a better plan because now that we started the site, people are now telling us what they want, not as opposed to what I want to build. So right now I'm building according to what my audience wants. If I was to say to somebody who's interested in setting up a business or are in a business and they need to achieve a certain aim, I, I consider this a, a really good find. There is no single pathway to entrepreneurial success. Most of the entrepreneurs I've interviewed on this podcast have gone through unique ways to reach their goals. But there are similar milestones along the journey. There are common questions every entrepreneur should address as they build their business. How do I find an idea I should pursue? How do I validate the idea? How do I build the product? How do I launch it? How do I find and reach customers? How do I grow revenue and scale? How do I build communities? community around my product? How do I build a team that we execute? How do I raise money? These are the fundamental questions every entrepreneur should be asking. The Osso Bootcamp program will help you tackle these questions. The Osso Bootcamp is an intensive five-week online program for high-performing individuals who want to build profitable, scalable, and fundable business in Africa. This is not your average online course. It is a coaching program. Everything in the course is designed towards enabling you to launch your new business or innovate an existing one. We are prioritizing transformation over information. There are five models in the program and they will be delivered over video along with worksheets, action plans, and step-by-step guides. But more importantly, every week during the program, have a hosting live office hours Q&A where we'll be breaking down key aspects of the course. And I'll have some of the guests from this podcast in the live Q&A. If you really want to build scale or get funding for your own business this is the program for you registration is now open and will be closing it very soon we have very limited seats go to the bootcamp.com that is t-h-e-h-u-s-t-l-e bootcamp.com the bootcamp.com and register now the next african story will be written by africans meet the people using technology innovation and entrepreneurship to craft this new narrative. This is Building the Future Podcast with your host, Dalton, coming up today on Building the Future. And by August, someone's telling me, here's $3 million, build your own business, get off get off YouTube. I'm like, Iroko wasn't even one year old. Now, hold on. Iroko, or Nollywood Love at the time, was not even one year old, and someone's giving me $3 million at a $12 million valuation, and you tell me I should not take it? Now, son, I'm going to take that money. Let me get that money. And the crazy thing is that we decided that like, this is a great opportunity, that we're going to build something really big if we can. And we spent the $3 million in five months. What? P1 
Beautifully Future Podcast Season 3 is brought to you in partnership with Flutterwave. Flutterwave's business is about connecting global businesses to Africa and building new businesses out of Africa through payment and technology. All opinions expressed by me and the podcast guests are solely ours and does not reflect the opinion of Flutterwave. To get started, go to flutterwave.com. My guest today is Jason Njoku. Jason needs very little introduction in the Nigerian tech ecosystem. He's one of the pioneers of jumping into the deep to build a tech-enabled business. His business is Iroko TV, Iroko Partners, and a lot of other startups that he's invested in. But people know him as the founder of Iroko TV, which is like, I'm sure it's going to scream when I say this. It's Netflix of Africa bringing Nollywood, which is a Nigerian movies using technology to make it accessible to a lot of people. Jason is very, very loud in the ecosystem and he has lots of viewpoint and he has shaped a lot of thoughts. So I would say Jason is a thought leader, he's a founder and he's an investor. I'm super thrilled to have him here on the show today to talk about lots of things, not just about Iroko, but his views, some of his controversial viewpoints. And I'm going to have some debate with him about that as well. But most importantly, his inspiring story into the startup world. So Jason, Welcome to Build in the Future. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. A lot of people that I've interviewed on this show and they refer to you, talk about you. Um, Hopefully they say good things. Uh, some of, yeah, a lot of them have said good things. So people like um, like SN, who was one of my earliest guests, talked about how your investment shaped his business. And some other people who you indirectly supported as well. Talked about a lot of good things about you. And also I've had Bastian, your co-founder on the show as well. And he said great things about the story of how it started. So let me start with how it started. I knew you were a serial entrepreneur from Manchester, maybe from London as well. You grew up in London. At what point did you know that you're going to be an entrepreneur, that you just want to keep trying and putting your hands into businesses? So that was a great introduction. So thank you very much. I guess the moment I realized that I was unemployable, so, like, I wouldn't employ someone like me. Like, I like to do things my own way. I have my own style. I have my own pace. Um, and I'm really good at not listening to people. So because of that, it's very difficult to kind of go into, like, a normal organization and work. So whilst I was at university, I had to work to put myself through university. Why was that? Didn't you have the loan or you just wanted to have more money? Well, the thing is that I think the loan is great, but the loan just about can afford you your fees and then obviously afford you uh, accommodation but then you actually have to get from A to B you have to sort of like live a life you've got to feed etc etc so I guess I, you know I was fortunate that one I was able to get the student loan but on the other side too there was no kind of family support so a lot of people or most people even use their family to support them in terms of like money and food and stuff like that I, I never really had that you know I'm the only person in my family who ever went to university so um, I had to work and I had to work like 16 to 20 hours a week it was fine I, I was actually walking in a call center actually so Direct Live was one of the big insurance, car insurance companies in the UK. They essentially revolutionized um, selling insurance over the phone and then the internet. Um, so I actually worked in their call center from London. And then when I moved to Manchester, I moved up there with them as well. So it was like part time. So it wasn't like a big drain of my time. But then one day I decided I didn't want to be there anymore. And I left. And I realized that like, you know, I was always again, trying to do my own thing at my own pace. And I didn't necessarily fit into like a large organizational framework. So I kind of realized that I, in, in the end, I, I wasn't likely going to have to work for somebody else because they wouldn't employ me in the long term. So I figured out that, let me just figure out this whole entrepreneurship thing. So it's good that you have that self-awareness because very few people have that kind of self-awareness that 
uh, this is my personality. Am I not fitting to the normal conventional mode of working? But then they try to, they don't understand it, some people, and then they try to just work and then they get fired or they get issues with their bosses and they just get frustrated. But you have that self-awareness. But with that self-awareness comes some sense of fear that, okay, the normal part is that I should get a job. If your dad was like Dan Gote, yes, you could, you could do your own thing. But do you have that kind of uh, trepidation that, oh, I'm not employable? So I feel, I've never met my father. So I think the great thing about universities are you have tens of thousands of young people and they all have their individual ambitions and they all have their individual potentials. But at that point, your potential isn't obvious. So if you look at anyone from university and you go 10 years after university, like a lot of people are doing things you don't expect them to have been, have been done. So I, I guess for me, it's, at that time, there was no one pushing me to do anything. I studied chemistry at university. Like, my people didn't even really know what I was doing, didn't know why I was doing it. I was doing it very far away from London, um, in you Manchester. You didn't have that discussion with your mom about, I want to do chemistry, this is what I want to do. No. About this kind of uh, hopes that parents put on, on their children. So she she wanted me to be a doctor, and I actually applied to medical schools. I think I got into, like, Birmingham Medical School, I think it, I think it was. In the end, I, I did a, what was it? I did a, a few weeks of work experience on the oncology ward which is a council ward in uh, Lewisham which is the area I grew up in I just found it so depressing I just it just it just wasn't something which I felt in the long term fitted my personality so you know there was the option to become a doctor but then I was really good at chemistry I, I genuinely enjoyed it I, I find it pretty straightforward and easy I don't like essays um, and I, I prefer to understand something and apply it and do good in an exam and I think that was pretty much my focus and that that's pretty much what led me to do, to do chemistry. But look, my mum, she never came to Manchester other than my graduation day. So I was very independent from day one. So Then you decided that you're going to pursue entrepreneurship right from university and as a career for you long time as well. Yes, my first company I started was in the final year of university. So semester one, Final year of university, I was like, I'm gonna start. A, I'm gonna quit my job at Direct Line. I'm gonna go and start a company, which everyone would tell you was like the worst time to do it. Um, and it definitely cost me the difference between me getting the first and the two one. Interesting. Um, so I got, I think, it was sixty seven point four percent, and I probably could have challenged and got like a first. I think the first was like sixty eight percent plus. You, you got to get. I'm pretty confident I would have got a first if I if I hadn't started that company, but. You know. what, what was the company? E-functions. So it's actually interesting. I spent a whole summer dreaming up about, you know, how I'm going to revolutionize the, you know, how student unions and how the different groups in universities organize their events. So essentially, essentially it was connecting, um, the student bodies with the event companies. So bars, clubs, restaurants, um, you know, people who provide flyers, equipment, all the rest of that stuff. So it was kind of like trying to tap into that party scene, um, in Manchester, which is, you know, it's still the largest, um, university town in Europe with about 130,000 students across like four or five universities. So I, I kind of wanted tap into that the challenge is that i spent pretty much all of the money that i had about three or four thousand pounds at the time i spent like about six months developing this idea and if i'd have made like five phone calls to um the people who ran the student groups i would have realized it was a terrible idea um what was fundamentally wrong about the idea so you have these groups of people like the you know pharmacy soccer team and they have the events coordinator or the events group and they basically organize events throughout the year for those individuals or you have the african caribbean society which organize again events through, throughout the, the the year now essentially my platform was supposed to take away all of that organizing from the person who's supposed to be organizing it so i was basically making that person redundant and i didn't realize that they actually enjoy that 
Activity. That's the reason that's, why they joined the, the, the club go. to so, become Swisher secretary. Absolutely. So they want to go to the clubs and negotiate with the bars. They want to go and organize the printers. They want to go and organize the graphic design. They, they, want, they actually genuinely want to do all of those things. Whereas my platform essentially was going to make them irrelevant. So the people who I was sort of pitching this thing to were like, well, that's my job. So why would I do that for you? Type of thing. So I immediately realized when I finished and spent all my money and like my whole summer that this was just a terrible, terrible, terrible idea. So you built a platform first yes. and then you went to look for the customers that you think yeah yeah so that's a classic mistake that a lot of entrepreneurs they make though you assume you make some assumption about problems sure that may not exist sure or that may not be something that is a problem to the people that you're trying to solve it for and then you be the product and then they tell you now nah, well, your product is rubbish because we're not going to use it so at that point you were roommate with bastian yes and you guys, were you ideating that with Bastian, your co-founder in Morocco? Yeah. So again, Bastian kind of was always on the sideline, just me, my crazy ideas. Um, you know, so he was always kind of giving input. He was always supportive, definitely. Um, but in the end, like I always charged in my own way, right? So after that, did you then do other businesses before you came to Nigeria? Yeah, no. So I did like nine, after that, I did like nine different businesses. So I had like a t-shirt printing company. I had a graphic design studio. I had a digital agency. I, what else? I ran a blog network around professional services. So like uh, solicitors, lawyers, bankers. I had a whole bunch of stuff, but again, ultimately none of them actually worked. Were you one of those people that, and I'm actually one of those as well, that is very difficult uh, when people ask you, what do you do? And just try to define, what do I do? And that time, it just had to be to, to def- because you're always trying new things at, so, at one point or the other, or you're just trying to figure out what you're doing. What are your case with you? Well, the thing is, I think, again, this is great about being in the student community. No one really asked you that because what are they doing? Right. If I was in London and I'm meeting other lawyers and bankers, people would be asking me those kind of like loaded questions. But in university, no one really cares what you do because you know what? No one's doing anything. They're just there enjoying themselves. You're trying to apply to a job somewhere else. Yeah, or, or whatever. So if you're leaving Manchester, then like, you know, that's great good luck you're gonna be a banker that sounds really awesome but uh, i guess from, from my perspective was no one was really asking me those questions and so, it was so let's move on to you try so many things and the key learning here is that you you didn't give up so determined about making a living and making a success out of entrepreneurship because you knew that getting employed is not a path for you and well, even the, the thing is i actually so when you're really broke, you go and get a job, right? So, like, there was periods where I was, like, dead broke. So, I was like, shit. Like, I haven't paid my house rent in, like, nine months. Landlords turned off the electricity. Like, let me try and go and get a job and perhaps reverse this situation. So, periodically, I would go and get a job. Okay. And then after three or four months, I get fired. So, it was like... You it get was, fired or you leave the job? A bit a mix of both. <laughs> well, what are the major reason why you get fired? So, I would be working on my own projects whilst I was... Employed. Employed. And you're running your own business and it's so obvious that your business is taking it's more attention. It's so obvious that I wasn't there. You know, when it's like, people were like, you're a really smart guy. Why are you not giving 100%? Because I wouldn't be giving 100%. I'd be giving just enough to make sure that like, okay, I was being able to achieve most of my targets and stuff. And, you know, perfect example, I worked in a digital recruitment agency back in 2008 or nine, I think it was. And um, my role was essentially to find businesses who needed to recruit people. And then once I've got the businesses, then I will go and find the, the candidates to fill those roles within the business and then take a percentage of the first year salary. So that was my job. I'd never done it before. It was over the phone. And a big part of that job was canvassing. So you get like, you go online, you pick up like a hundred companies and you just sort of cold call them and you pitch them the idea that you've got these great candidates. This is the firm I'm working for, et cetera, et cetera. I hated that. I hated cold calling people. I hated the whole concept of it. I just sound like a massive waste of time. So it was all about activity, not about outcome. So then I was like, well, you know, how many, you know, this is a new business or like four or five years old. How many of the previous sort of people we've placed 
candidates in, you know, how many of those are we still recruiting for? So I, I kind of went to their cupboard and I just looked at all of the people over the years who they've actually had a contractor relationship with. And I just called those people and I was like, hey, I'm from BD Recruitment. You know, we placed someone for you like two years ago, but we're kind of still in the game. If you've got any recruitment needs. So essentially I kind of found an easy way to sort of like get the actual roles. Yeah. So then I, I obviously had like this overflow of roles. And then it was just a question of getting the candidates. So usually, you know, you go into LinkedIn. Again, this is really early days in LinkedIn. So you go into LinkedIn, you'd find the candidates. Um, you go into all these CV databases, you will find and speak to people and and what I was doing was rather than, you know, trying to fill the role, I was actually building relationships with the actual candidates. So I would spend a load of time speaking to them, like hours. The guy who owned the company was furious at me. He was like, one, you're, you're supposed to be canvassing when everybody else is canvassing. And not only that, you're actually spending a huge amount of time just chatting to these candidates. Like, don't talk to them, just fill their roles. And I'm like, look, if someone's going to feel comfortable leaving their existing role to go to another job, at least they should be comfortable that, like, I at least give a shit about them. So... I was doing it upside down. So what he expected, what I was supposed to be doing, I was doing it the exact opposite. But were you getting results? I was crushing it. Like, so, so what was his problem? So the problem was he felt that I was a bad influence on other people. Yes. Because if you're, again, I'm in a team and everyone is like dialing for dollars like every single day. And I'm just like leaning back, you know, laughing and joking with these different young candidates in digital marketing, et cetera, et cetera. So even though I'm putting numbers on the board. You were setting the wrong I'm culture. I'm setting the wrong culture for his company. Yes. So I was like, you know, we, we had like a crisis meeting. Again, you know, I started, I was there four months. By the third month, I think I was doing like um, somewhere between 20 to 25,000 pounds, I think, in revenue for the company. I'm, I'm not earning 20, 25,000 pounds a year but that's how much I'm generating in terms of fees for the actual company so and I had like a good pipeline of candidates who've fallen in completely love with me and I'm, I'm here's crazy I'm still friends with some of those people like now and they still randomly call me and we used to, and if I'm in San Francisco I've got a couple out there who, was, who moved from London to San Francisco and we're really cool so that's the kind of long-term friend making sort of framework I, I had but he was like look like you need to essentially be like everybody else and I was like look in my, in my mind I'm like if I'm delivering you the money right like I can come, I can turn up in, in a chicken suit like who cares because he would want me to wear a suit and I'm like I don't want to wear a suit I, I wear slippers and sandals that's kind of my thing so as a Birkenstock freak then so I used to wear Birkenstocks like everywhere I went so it's like I'm on the phone I'm, I'm never meeting clients I'm never meeting customers I'm never meeting candidates like why do I need to wear a suit so he's like you gotta wear a suit and he's like you gotta wear a blazer a suit I'm like okay I'll wear like a I had like a velvet grey blazer which is like an old professor type thing with like um, uh, yeah, what was it things on his shoulders patch, yeah. patches on the, on, yeah, on, yeah. The, on the elbows and he just hated that and I was like look I'm putting numbers up and he was like no it's bad for my culture etc etc so I said you know what let me leave so I left so let's talk about that now for you now as a boss and you're running companies now and do you have team members like that like you that you supported and how do you manage that so Firstly, I care about results. I'm all about performance. I'm only about performance. Like, I literally don't give a shit about what you wear. Like, I think as long as you are not rude to your co-workers and you can deliver your job, then just do it. Like, I, I, again, it's, I try to keep the, um, the organization as flat as possible. You know, different sort of members of my team are trying to pro- create processes around how we do things, but I'm kind of trying to resist that because I think you stay small by just getting things done. So, we have star people who I literally never speak to who just do what they want to do. And I, I'm really big at pushing responsibility down. I, I literally only care about the outcome. So I think Iwako is a place where we can genuinely tolerate like that type of person. Because you, you understand the viewpoint and the thought process of the doctrinal person. Absolutely. Right. Let's move on from that point. You were doing several businesses. Some of them were failing. Some of them were, were working. And I'm trying to Draw a thread there from what Bastin, Bastin told me. So one day he just had a phone call from you. You are in Nigeria. You are doing something about Nollywood. 
can you fill in the gap there? How did you end up in Nigeria and you're doing something about Nollywood? So it wasn't actually Nollywood. I started off in music. I think it's 2009. Broke as broke could be, like in court with my landlord because I haven't been paying rent in a whole bunch of times. So I realized that maybe it's time for me just to go home. In Manchester? In Manchester, yeah. You were a graduate with just sticking around in Manchester doing I, I, several I, I, stuff. I was in county court with my landlord because I just wasn't unable to pay them. Interesting. Absolutely. You're CCJ with your landlord. I had a no, I, I negotiated. So he tried to bring a CCJ against me, right? And a CCJ is a county court judgment. Yeah. Essentially, it's a massive impact on your credit yes. ability in the UK. Yeah. For those who may or may not understand that, if you get a CCJ, you basically can't get any credit cards. You can barely open a bank account. Essentially, like you can't do anything in the UK if you have a CCJ against you. Um. So I was doing everything I could to avoid that. So I worked on a payment plan. We begged the guy. It was a really nice guy. It was really cool. Um. I think we definitely just. We were unable to pay, had nowhere to go. Who is the we? So me and a friend of mine, actually he was like a, a computer science graduate. Uh, I met him at Direct Line. Um, he was best man at my wedding when I got married, like many years later. We're still very good friends uh, today. And we were, we were living in this place and, you know, he was still at university and was still trying to build his startup and I was trying to build my startup. We just couldn't pay. And we just we didn't pay for like nine months. And the guy was really cool, but he took us to court. We went to court and we negotiated sort of some sort of settlement. We would pay him. Um, so essentially, like I had to go and get a job to in order to pay him his money so he wouldn't get a ccj but in order to do that i wasn't able to actually have somewhere to live so i actually moved back to london i got a job in an affiliate company i lasted for like one week there you were fired again yeah i was fired again (laughs) (laughs) um but the the guys you know I was fired because they found a better candidate, but also because I was very distracted. So I moved back into my mother's place. I left eight years prior. I moved back the years, eight years later, back into my old room from when I was a kid that I used to share with my brother. I worked so I can pay off that debt. And my mum usually goes to the East Owerri every five years or so. I think it's 2009, like a 2008 or 2009, one on a, on, a, on a trip there. I went into a nightclub and I was expecting to hear like Jay-Z and 50 Cent and stuff. And I heard like Nigerian music and I thought that was quite interesting. So I bought like a whole bunch of VCDs uh, or CDs even and um, took them back to the UK and tried to sell them on eBay. So the original version of nigerian content to the world was me taking um me taking nigerian music putting on ebay as an as a, as a sort of shop and which, trying to sell that was this 2009 nobody bought the cds so i tried again with nigerian movies and there was a lady a Ghanaian lady i can't remember her name but there's a Ghanaian lady in like wolverhampton or somewhere like that she used to buy up all of my vcds and then there were some people also selling all these nigerian movies in nigerian shops yes around london they were like everywhere in the nigerian shops in around london um but again my view is being a child of the internet then surely there should be people who are willing to buy online so i so i tried to sell online and and that basically didn't work either um, it didn't work didn't work at all so before iwako started to work it was about 18 months so what are you trying and trying after just just try it. again it's like it's by that time i i was that i worked for a week they found a better candidate for the role that i did hired me for you know they really taking a chance on me they just like me they're taking a chance on me and again they, they actually they really looked after me i think they gave me like two months pay for a week's work which i thought was just amazing and i, I have nothing but respect for the brothers they actually built um i think it's vouchercoach.co.uk um okay. they sold it to like well sharks so they got a big exit and they're, sort of like, they're, they're, they're really big in the in the, in the london um tech scene and i think the, the brothers who did that were just uh um, jennings brothers i think were really awesome and I think that was a big lesson for me that like it's when someone leaves, how you treat them as you leave will basically color the entire experience or when they were there. So they could have had an amazing 10 years, 
But if at the point of leaving, somehow something like messes up, then they have a, in their mind, it's a terrible company, terrible experience, et cetera, et cetera. And it's not just for them as well, but for people that stay. Yes. The way you treat someone that is leaving, it's a big uh, reflection on, on the people that stay as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I went to, what's it called? Data Monitor. They're like this, uh, again, over the phone selling access to, I think it was pharmaceutical products and stuff like that. And I was there for a few months. And again, I, I was just bought out of my face. I think it was a great company, but it's just not for me at all. Again, they needed me to wear a suit. Um, that was a bit of pushback there. But this thing was just interesting. It was something I'll just, I'll come home six, seven, I'll just work through the night at my mom's house and just try and figure it out. Um, so I, I just kept on going on and on and on. Why were you getting these CDs from Nigerian movies? So I was buying them. I was buying them from Nigeria and then when somebody some, sending them. Someone sent them. Yep. So that's basically how I was buying them. So it, it wasn't working selling them via eBay. Um, and we had an Amazon store as well, so it wasn't working that way, other than the one lady who was buying them from Wolverhampton or somewhere, like a Ghanaian lady. So in, in the end, it wasn't working right. So, you know, with that said, I kept on going on and on about it. Sebastian was like, you know what, stop talking about it. Essentially, take some money, go to Lagos and see what's there. So basically, I went to, when I first came to Lagos in 2010, I think it was April or May, I came just to fact find, just to come and see like what was going on, what, what was happening, essentially. And I think... I was just so amazed at Nollywood and where it was being created. So this was very much like Idiomata, Alaba, uh, markets. So I was like, how can, Alaba, how can Alaba produce this stuff which is being watched in the UK and being valued at a certain amount? So essentially, like the, the entire premise behind Iroko was to create the bridge between the content and the content producers and the people wherever they are in the world who would basically love to see this content. Right, so you moved from just trying to sell online the CDs. You now moved. You when you came to Lagos, you went to Dumata, you went to Alaba, and you saw how how much they're producing. Yes, and maybe you saw how little they were using to produce it as well. Was that something I well little, but it was a lot to me. Again, I didn't have any money. Someone like Bastian bought my ticket to come out here, and I lived with my uncle. In, I squatted with my uncle in his house in Oshodi, so it's not like I had money. So. I felt that the way people were valuing this content in the UK versus, again, the kind of people I thought would be creating this content. So if you go to Hollywood or Bollywood, these are like guys in sharp suits and skyscrapers doing deals. It wasn't like that at all. It was like private individuals. And trying to get a hold of someone, it's just like a problem. And there's a massive amount of fragmentation. There still is a massive amount of fragmentation. So my view was that, look, there's a real opportunity for us to be that bridge, to build that company, which sort of at least solves that, that fundamental problem. And how did you ideate that? product that will solve that problem bearing in mind that you try to buy what they produce and sell it in online channels well it wasn't my idea i was just like there's something here i don't know what it is there's something here i was so excited about it and bastion was like you know what why don't you just put it on youtube interesting it was that wasn't my idea to put it on youtube so it was bastion's idea said put it on youtube and that means that you're going to get the cd buy the right from them yep put it on youtube and the revenue model was advertised advertising so my initial um position was i wanted to do revenue share so i spent like months going around um alaba preaching the concept of let me do with the digitization let me protect the rights and let's share the revenue and they refused what was their main objection which one is the internet they didn't understand the internet they barely understood me when i speak so i actually had someone who i was imagine i'm speaking to you in english now then i had someone with me who would who would translate it in nigerian <laughs> english it's that, but even till today i still most people don't understand what, like, me when i speak so i still usually have someone translate what i'm saying to somebody else who sits we're speaking english but i have an english translator to kind of nigerian <laughs> um but these guys they're Igbo guys right so they were speaking Igbo. And they felt more comfortable speaking in Igbo. And he was sort of like, just reiterate whatever I said in, in Igbo and it, and, and it basically worked. 
And then, so did you get any of them to say, okay, I'm going to say you this, right? I don't know what's come out of it, but... No, no one did revenue share? But then they have nothing to lose. You can get it and put it online. And if they don't understand the internet, so it's, it's as good as somebody just playing it in a club. So I could have easily done that, but I didn't. And I think for me, you know, with this massive you know, reputation risk and misrepresentation risk of Nigeria, I kind of felt that in terms of my preference would be to try and do something as honest as possible. So in the end, we, you know, we sat down and they essentially determined and we negotiated a price, which, you know, was pretty much finger in the air. I have no idea how, is it, this is a good price, is this a bad price? But they don't know either. Nobody knows. But it, nobody knows. But we still sat down and there was a deal to be done, right? Right. Um, so and what was the deal then? So then it was, I think it was $200 for a movie for one year. So you pay them $200 so that they can have their movie on YouTube for one year. Yeah. And that means that when they see the movie on YouTube, they don't, they cannot write to YouTube and say you should take it yeah. down because we've got that right. But there are other people that were doing, they're just copying and putting their movies online. Yes, right? they were. And what did you do with that? So there was a massive and this is the interesting thing is that it's only after we've done that that I realized there was actually a very fri- big, thriving, massive privacy problem on, on YouTube then, 2007, 8, 9. They were putting up their movies anyway. We counted a bunch of channels. There was like 100 million video views for these Nollywood movies. And we were just shocked. Even when I showed YouTube, I, I remember talking to the YouTube team in, in, in London. I was like showing them how much people were watching this content. And they just couldn't believe it. But again, it's... Then YouTube had a restriction of 15 minutes for any piece of content. So they'll take a movie, 60 minutes, they'll split it up into four. And then they'll take like a three-hour movie and split it up into 12 or 13 or 14. Whereas because we were fully licensed, because we were able to demonstrate a contract, because we had a partnership program, we were able to go in there and... Um, and do it one hour. And do one hour or two hours or however long. But that was only because we had the YouTube partnership there. It was like, it was like a year later until YouTube actually opened up for everybody. We had like a year head start. And... Secondly, we were able to enforce licenses that we got as well. So one day there were like hundreds of thousands of people watching illegal movies on YouTube. I turned them all off and then it was just me. So I think, you know, that was why we just exploded in terms of like revenue, in terms of everything way beyond our expectations because we were able to deal with the privacy like from day one. And the revenue was coming purely from from adverts. Purely from adverts. So we had no concept of the um, the potential. So I think month one, December ten, we did like six thousand five and a half, six thousand dollars. Next month it was like eighteen thousand dollars. February it was like twenty one, twenty two thousand dollars. Then by like June, July it was like fifty, sixty thousand dollars a month. And I was just like, this is amazing. And again, like you have to understand, this is me in my apartment with some guys. Um, and some of the guys are actually still here. There's like several people outside who were like employee number two, number, number four, number five, etc. It looks magical though, because you just went to Alaba, buy $200 worth of CD, upload it on YouTube and sit back and watch Make the money. revenue come. Yeah. That looks like you're printing cash from your bedroom. Yes. And how did, so Dustin told me then you were doing that. That was going on well. And then what happened? How did, Tiger Global then get to know about you and then turn it into what we now see as... So, again, it's like, um, I bought a piece of content for $200 and I put it up and within a week, I was making $200 per week off that same piece of content. So, I got scared. I was just like, someone else is going to realize that this is going to be a problem. I'm almost monetizing it too well. And I genuinely felt guilty that I was making this much money off people's content and I was completely arbitraging their their, their lack of understanding of, of this thing, right? So... I was super aggressive in increasing the prices. So within six months, we were paying like a thousand, one that one five, two thousand dollars for for the same piece of content. You were offering them more, and they would be yes. wondering, 
what what is happening here but but some of them do they understand no. what is happening no. that you're, you're you're making a lot of money from youtube no they don't because they don't have nobody has the don't forget visibility this. of how much the biggest film not the biggest nollywood film of 2011 was blackberry babes like it was the biggest film in 2011 it was blackberry babes it's like and like on ghetto like we, we, we're, we were so far away from like what we see now uh in terms of technology what we see now in terms of adoption so it was super duper early it's, it's almost like i was coming from the future and i just knew what to do i just pressed this button press that button and the money came out again like of that 50 60 thousand dollars a month forty thousand dollars a month was like profits why did you have to raise money then why we did didn't you have accept somebody money. why did you accept somebody else's money when well, they well, offered well, you well it's interesting it's like um so we we already were having problems with youtube so the first time I kind of really came out was, I think it was May 2011. We did like Google Nigeria, but we'd been on like CNBC Africa and then CNN was doing their thing. So people kind of realized that it was some, there's some guy out in Festac doing something interesting. You know, Sarah Lacey became a fast friend of mine when I took her out to Alabo and she did her stories in TechCrunch. You know, it's, people take TechCrunch for granted, but go back to 2010, 11, they weren't writing about Nigerian companies. So then they wrote two stories about, um, Iroko and one weekend. And we had a huge amount of interest from like people in San Francisco, right? Um, it's like this is Nigerian company they're doing video etc cetera, etc cetera. and what was the story the story was you're digitizing Nigerian Hollywood or? yeah one I think we'd, gross revenue was like a million dollars uh, we were very profitable then uh, again for my apartment and, and she did that nice video then um, and two we went to Alaba we didn't ask the right permissions we went with a camera crew and they basically seized our cameras and tried and took us to court in like their, I guess their, their kangaroo court. They have a kangaroo court. In they have a specific court. Um, Alabu actually isn't administered by the police. Um, it seems to be administered by the, you know, the Agboros, if you want to call them that, the gangs or whoever, the sort of the, the market guys. Um, so for her, you know, if she's like five months pregnant, she's like the San Francisco, uh, she's pretty, she's, she's really tough, but it's such a random story. And she wrote about it and people just like, fuck, this is amazing. But then, you know, she, the way she kind of like painted me as this guy who was just always calm and deal with it, checkbook in the pocket, we'll, we'll figure this thing out. So she kind of like really you know made me look like a superstar a, a tough guy a tough guy who, who was coming from somewhere and then just making yeah, yeah, a very british accent they're doing a tough thing so um but again 2010 uh tiger global had this thesis that they felt over the next decade that video was going to be the big thing and you have to remember as well when she wrote that article netflix was a u.s-based company they were primarily doing dvds they just launched their separate uh SVOD service so they, Netflix wasn't even a thing that anyone really thought about back then as being like a streaming service. So Tiger Global were of the opinion that, look, over the next 10 years, video will be the biggest and most important thing that people do online. They took a big bit on Netflix and they put a couple of hundred million dollars into Netflix when it was like, you know, $20, $30 a share, something, something stupid like that. Um, they put uh, about $45 million or something like that into a um, the number one uh, video service Um net movies i think it was in brazil um they were part of a group of investors who put close to 100 million dollars into the number one um, streaming service in uh in russia called ivr ivi the ru they put i think their first or second money into um qq which is a, a chinese um, video service which uh, is now listed on nasdaq and they were like you know what africa let's kick this guy some money and and, and see what they're doing right so again in october 2010 i was broke Bastion basically gave me money to come here and establish, get my apartment established, eat work and do all the rest of this stuff. Within six months, I'm sort of looking at, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60,000 dollars a month in revenue. And again, it's his dollars. There was no Naira equivalent or anything like that at all. And then by August, someone's telling me, here's $3 million, build your own business, get off, get off YouTube. I'm like, 
Iroko wasn't even one year old. Now, hold on. Iroko or Nollywood Love at the time was not even one year old. And someone's giving me $3 million at a $12 million valuation. And you tell me I should not take it? Now, son, I'm going to take that money. Let me get that money. And we'll figure out what we're going to do. We actually believed once we got the $3 million that that we'd retire. That was it. That we retired. We have, the work's done. Like, do anything. When I, actually, I was, I, from, I was at the airport and I got the alert that the $3 million came into my account. And I was scared. I was like, fuck, this is $3 million. Again, a year ago, I literally was broke living in my mum's house. And now I've got $3 million under my control. It's like, that, 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 I, I got scared. I was like, I'm scared. And what were you supposed to be doing with the money? <laughs> supposed to be build an engineering team, build another platform, launching Iroko TV, what, what Iroko TV came today, and organizing content. And the crazy thing is that we decided that, like, this is a great opportunity, that we're going to build something really big if we can. And we spent the $3 million in five months. What? You spent $3 million in five, in five months. months trying yeah. to build a team? We spent, we, we put $2 million, no, 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 we put, we put $2 million in content. In building out your own content? No, no, in buying content. In buying, but, but why is the content now more expensive? You were buying for $1,500. Before so three million dollars. There's a reason why there is little competition for Iroko for content. I put when no when literally I was on YouTube by myself, complete monopoly. No one even realized what I was doing. Definitely didn't realize I was making that much money. Again, I'm very open, so I told everyone I'm, look how much money I'm making, which caused huge amounts of people to now join the business. Um, but they joined on YouTube. By that time I'd got three million dollars and I'd launched in by the again by December twenty eleven I'd launched Iroko TV. I took two million dollars and I just closed my eyes and I bought every single piece of content I could at between three and a half and five thousand dollars. My everything, viewers, everything. Uh, just uh, bring anything. I buy. It. Didn't care. Just let me just buy it. And you're buying for one thousand five hundred dollars. No, three to five thousand dollars. You increased. I the increased price. it again in order to staff up the competition, or in order to return more value to the content producers. Um, but more importantly, I didn't want competition. So you were just you increased the price. You knew that you had more buying power than everyone. I, I increased the price, and I bought exclusive for three years and it just essentially stopped it like again it, it made competing with Rocco incredibly expensive i have the customers i have the momentum like you're now competing against me you can't come in there with like a hundred thousand dollars and play like i've changed that game if you bring a million dollars it's not enough i've changed that game too so when you're coming you've got to come hard you have to come like 5x more than you need to come with, if, if, if you came with five million dollars in 2012 it wouldn't have been enough yeah, you have to come in like five, like $15 million and a lot of experience and get people that have worked with you as well. So now, where's the Iroko TV competition? There is none. Because you are able to, so you, was that deliberate that you spent that much to buy? Because a lot of people were looking at your, your balance sheet at that point. Say, so you are $3 million. Why did you have to spend that much within a short time when you don't have any hope of raising money at the end? Or you don't have any, pos- there's no assurance that you're going to be able to raise money after six months. So... I believed and I still believe now that in life, it's not, sometimes it's not about the thousand things you do, it's about the one thing that you do. And I felt that after failing for so long to see something work, it's like, this, this might be the one thing that I do in my life that changes my life. So if I'm going to do it, let me just do it properly. And you have to understand that there's a lot of pressure on me then to like, ah, guy, $3 million. I take $1 million, put to one corner eh, and that eh, balance, get your own house. Get... No, I said, no, this, this thing has to grow. Oh, so you didn't take any money off the table? Not $1. You put everything into the Every business? Every single thing into the business. And you were still living in the place you're living. You were married then, right? So I wasn't married then, no. I met my wife now but girlfriend then I met her in January so I met my wife there's like five or six people working in Iroko you met your wife when you put up well, there's like five people 
she she literally used to, she used to come out um, and cook for all of the Iwoko uh, original stuff like back then. Right. So you you put all the money into you saw the vision that I need to start off every competition. I need to buy more content, and the way to do that is to buy more content and invest in engineering. And you decided to do that. So yeah, absolutely. So um, one thing which I will forever regret that I should have done then for the three or five thousand dollars they would have given me everything forever you would have locked down everything in everything my wife was like she was so upset with me why are you why are you these guys they will sell this thing for you outright why are you just doing a three-year license buy the whole thing from them they don't even know what they're buying i'm like no 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 no. let me be the good guy then i was so nice i literally could have bought the entire dollar for like two or three million dollars that was what was produced then that was Not, produced then. Yeah, what was but, what they have then? The content but, they have then, you could have bought it for, um, for forever. And just. Yeah, but the thing is, what they have then is still what's being shown on these TV channels, which is being on YouTube. So it still comes back to compete with me. So you have to pay them. Now, when you come back after three years, you now pay more because they know... They, they now start to get a video of value. But here's the thing is like, um, one, when we went back for relicensing, um, so they refused to sell to me. They refused to sell to you. Alaba were of the view that well, we're basically going to go head to head with them and we're going to try and um, replicate what they did. So by 2014, I think was the year, they all created their own YouTube channels. So Google Nigeria went to the guys and said, don't go for a middleman, don't give it to Iroko, go directly, we'll give you the tools to help you do that. So Google Nigeria, um, again, no love lost there, but they basically helped to create lots of competition to me. They didn't like the idea that I was standing between them and this huge amount of content for Nigeria. And there's other things happening in the background as well. My initial employee, so my first, within my first five employees there were people who left to go and try and create and replicate because what we they were can doing. see the money because they can see the thing the is arbitrage is huge but the thing is it's a great again I'm, I'm so oh so nice man i literally would teach them how this business works they will open the basketball and they will see that we're making four dollars thousand dollars a day we're making five thousand so they could see it and you know how nigerian producers are they're like i right, got like, how, how far like what's you know what's how do we do this thing so ibaka tv the guys who run the back of TV, launched the back of TV, came out of um, the, the initial employees in Morocco. My cousin, um, as in like my, my... There is no single pathway to entrepreneurial success. Most of the entrepreneurs I've interviewed on this podcast have gone through unique ways to reach their goals. But there are similar milestones along the journey. There are common questions every entrepreneur should address as they build their business. How do I find an idea I should pursue? How do I validate the idea? How do I build the product? How do I launch it? How do I find and reach customers? How do I grow revenue and scale? How do I build community around my product? How do I build a team that we execute? How do I raise money? These are the fundamental questions every entrepreneur should be asking. The Also Bootcamp program will help you tackle these questions. The Also Bootcamp is an intensive five-week online program for high-performing individuals who want to build profitable, scalable, and fundable business in Africa. This is not your average online course. It is a coaching program. Everything in the course is designed towards enabling you to launch your new business or innovate an existing one. We are prioritizing transformation over information. There are five models in the program and they will be delivered over video along with worksheets, action plans, and step-by-step guides. But more importantly, every week during the program, have a hosting live office hours Q&A where we'll be breaking down key aspects of the course. And I'll have some of the guests from this podcast in the live Q&A. If you really want to be 
build, scale, or get funding for your own business, this is the program for you. Registration is now open and we'll be closing it very soon. We have very limited seats. Go to thehustlebootcamp.com. That is T-H-E-H-U-S-T-L-E bootcamp.com. Thehustlebootcamp.com and register now. Building the Future Podcast Season 3 is brought to you in partnership with Flutterwave. Flutterwave's business is about connecting global businesses to Africa and building new businesses out of Africa through payment and technology. All opinions expressed by me and the podcast guests are solely ours and does not reflect the opinion of Flutterwave. To get started, go to flutterwave.com. You've been listening to Building the Future podcast by Dalton. These are the interviews with entrepreneurs that are playing a key part in shaping the African future. And you'll be able to hear all their stories. For more, sign up for the weekly newsletter at thestarter.com. Our revolution will be televised. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed the show. Before you go, I have a favor to ask you, and it will take 30 seconds of your time or less. It will mean a lot to me. If you like this podcast, you can easily let me know by going into iTunes, Teacher, SoundCloud, or wherever you download podcasts and subscribe. You can also go to our website, thestarter.com. That is T-H-E-S-T-A-R-T-A.com and sign up for our newsletter. It will be a huge favor to me and it's really simple and easy. If you subscribe now, it will help us a lot. Thanks. Thanks.